Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Let us pray. O great and merciful Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that as we open your word, that every word that is contained in the scriptures is proven and it is true. Lord, that you are truth and that in you there is no lies or deception, that you are the one who is faithful, that although we might be unfaithful, Lord, you remain faithful for you cannot deny yourself. Lord, let your word be a shield to us. Let God be our, our shield and our refuge tonight as we take cover in you. Lord, teach us of ourselves, but point us to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 1. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid a fare. The fair and went down into it, and to go into them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea, and the, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mar- mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, so he laid, laid down, lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and they fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest had come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
When Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. We turn uh, this evening to a new book, and a book that we most likely know a lot of the story of. We, we know the story about Jonah, that he runs away, that a fish comes and eats him. But I think we understand a small portion of this book. We don't understand the most important part of this book and this story. This book is quite different from any other prophetic book that we have in the Bible. It's not just different that it's a different account of how uh, the word that goes out. Most of the prophetic books are written by a prophet for the nation Israel. But there are a few, uh, Obadiah, Nahum, and now Jonah, who are written about uh, going and telling other nations about what God is saying. Now, the other books don't actually have the journey on which it goes out. Most of these, Obadiah and Nahum, there's this comment that they write this letter, but there's no comment about how that message then goes forth to the other nations. But the major difference between Jonah and the other prophetic books is that it's not so much about the prophetic message. It's actually more about the prophet. It's more a story about what the prophet is going through. It's more like a story of Elijah or Elisha in First and Second Kings than the other prophetic books that we have. The other prophetic books, we get to find out a little bit about the prophets themselves. But here we get to find out a lot about Jonah, who he is as a prophet. Most of the other books are dedicated to what the prophet says, not who the prophet is, what he does. Most of it's about what he says, the visions he sees. But this is quite different. It's quite the opposite. There's only a one line in this whole book of actually what Jonah says as a prophet to the people. But the large portion of this book is actually dedicated to what happens. It is more like a narrative, a story. But this book is challenging to us. It's not so much about what we are to do. But again, it looks back at the mindset that a believer must have in this fallen world. What is the drive of the message, the heart of God? What it is to have a heart of a prophet and what that means. I think the drive of this book is to show us that our theology actually matters when it comes to how we interact with others, especially when it comes to evangelism. It becomes then a very personal book to us, not as we read it to be able to judge Jonah, to be able to nitpick his theology or his actions, but then to go that step further to ask what it means for us, what then is our theology, what are our actions, what is God's heart for missions, what is God's heart for those who might not align with how we think. Now, this is far more than we're taught in Sunday school lessons about this book. It's hard to fit that into a coloring page with a whale or a fish. And it's a dangerous undertaking. It's a dangerous undertaking if we were to dive deep into the book of Jonah. From the outset, we understand that we're going to learn more about God. But more importantly, how we think about God. 
how those incorrect understandings about God shape our interactions with others, mainly unbelievers. So what are we going to look at this evening? First, we'll begin with the prophet. Jonah, the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, begins like any other prophetic book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's how most book, book, prophetic books start, that it begins with the word coming down to the prophet that he might be able to go into the nations or the nation to be able to tell of what God has said. But who was Jonah? When did he live? Now we find out that Jonah is the son of a, a Matai. Now this is, can be very helpful to be able to understand heritage of a person. They didn't really have last names in this time, so you're known more by your family, your father, and your family members. But at some point, this is how we used to do last names, right? They did have a meaning. The Smith families were normally blacksmiths. You have the Masons down the road who worked with stone. You have the Roberts family, who was a family of people called Robert. So they're known somewhat to these familiar connections. And sometimes these names can be helpful. Others it's not. Joshua the son of Nun. Literally we know nothing about Joshua's father other than his name was Nun. But other times we can see a deeper connection. Now some have tried to make the connection between Jonah and his name and his father's name. Jonah means dove. Amati is the similar word for Truth or truthfulness, so it's a dove of truthfulness going in. Peace. However, I think the main reason we're told his name is not because we try and make a connection to his father. Because he appears another time in the Bible. We can actually learn a lot about Jonah because he appears in Second Kings chapter 14. This is where he's mentioned. Second Kings chapter 14 verses 23 to 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he was, he was made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel to Lebohamath, as the side of the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which the spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amati, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would not blot out, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hands of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, in that all that he did, and his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are not written in the book of are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the king of Israel, and uh, um, Zerachiah the son, uh, the, his son reigned his, in his place. Now we find out that Jonah 
was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, which is roughly about 793 to uh, 753 BC. And Jonah was a prophet, and we find out he had another prophetic message during this time. And the prophetic message was that Israel's borders would grow underneath the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II was not a good king, like Jeroboam I, who caused Israel to sin. And he continued, Jeroboam II continued in having all of Israel worship through these false, idolatrous ways. That he continued in that false worship that Jeroboam I set up, the idolatry that Jeroboam I set up, who's reigning in the northern kingdom. But notice something about this prophetic message. That we're told that the Lord saw their affliction. And it was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he saved them by the hands of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This prophetic message is that here they are, and this time is very bitter. They're afflicted by all these people. There's none left. But the God sees this. And he uses Jeroboam, this wicked king, to be able to bring in these blessings through this prophetic message. Now, some have explained later that here Amos is, and Amos has a similar prophecy. But this prophecy is against what Jonah was saying. So they kind of explain that Jonah was some form of patriotic Israelite, was pro-Israel, and all that he saw was his, his nation's interest at heart. He's somewhat of a false prophet to some extent. And they place him in a category of either being racist or pro-Israel. However, I think this is not the issue which Jonah is facing at this time. If he loved Israel so much, why then would he run from Israel? Why would he flee from the presence of God? But I think if we understand his heart and what he, his message, then we can understand how it shapes us as we comprehend the book of Jonah. Now if we put these two messages together that Jonah has given, Jonah has given these two messages where he needs to go and tell these wicked kings and these wicked nations. In the case of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam doesn't repent, Jeroboam doesn't change his ways, but what happens? The nation of Israel seems to be blessed underneath the reign of Jeroboam. So he goes to this king and says, here's what's going to happen, and it happens. But Jeroboam doesn't change. He still does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The God saves Israel, the northern kingdom, by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And this is exactly what Jonah will complain about in chapter 4. That I knew you would be merciful and gracious. Jonah is not so much pro-Israel. I think he's pro-justice. And he says, why should the wicked be shown mercy and grace? Now, before we continue, is this not a challenging point that we sometimes are guilty of feeling? 
We look at others and their positions that they've found themselves in, and we say things to ourselves. You need to sleep in the bed you make, or you get what is coming to you. We look at them and we think, their life is exactly how I assumed it would be. Their choices, their actions, of course their life is going that way. Or maybe we even look at ourselves and we think the opposite of, well, they deserve to be down there. And we think we deserve to be up here. We lift ourselves up thinking that I've done enough to be able to achieve this, that I've earned my space, my position, or my blessings. Now, this is not to downplay choices, have outcomes, some positive, some negative. Teach says daily to our children. If you're rude and not nice to be around people, then maybe you won't have many friends. But Jonah has once before delivered a message to a wicked king saying, the, the Israel is going to expand, it's going to be blessed. And this wicked king received mercy and grace. So now we know a little bit about Jonah and his history. What then is the message that he brings? We find this in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here is the message given to the prophet, quite plain and simple. There's a place to go to Nineveh. There's a description of this place. There's a message. There's a reason. The place is Nineveh. Now, although the Assyrian Empire at this time doesn't have any capital city, this would have been one of these great locations. If not the top of the list, the king would have spent a large amount of time in the city, We're told later of how big it is. And this time we're given a brief description that it is great. We'll hear more about this city in chapter 3. But here you have a small prophet that we would have not known about if it was not for this book. We would have read over 2 Kings chapter 14, I'm sure. And you have this small prophet called to go to this great city. It's great in size, it's great in population. And he's given a simple message. Go to this place, this great city, to call out against it. Now this is the difficult part of a prophet, right? The part of a prophet is to go forth and be able to proclaim the, the word which is given to you. This small prophet is to go to this great city and proclaim this message to call out against it. To call the people to repent. Now it's always a difficult task to be a prophet. Even the great prophets going to proclaim to Israel who should know God, know his ways. But even more, when you're one man... In a city of 120,000. It's a tall order to go forth and proclaim this. But even this last sentence is not done justice. Their evil has come up before me. One commentator explains what it is this evil, these Assyrian empire did. While all sin is abhorrent to God, in some instances a specific group of people has become so wicked that God issued a special call of localized judgment 
So it was with Nineveh. Archaeology confirms the biblical witness of the wickedness of the Assyrians. They were well known in the ancient world for their brutality and cruelty. One ruler was accustomed to tearing off the lips and hands of his victim. Another flayed victims alive and made great piles of their skulls. Jonah's reluctance to travel to Nineveh may have been due to this infinite violence. Not only this tall order to be able to go one against 120,000, when these 120,000 are known for ripping off limbs, flaying people, He's afraid to be able to go there. He doesn't have to just go there and and call them out. He needs to call them out for their wicked deeds, of which he would then have happened to you if they did not like what you had to say. Most likely, his lips would have been torn off if they did not receive his message fondly. Now, we can be quick as we read through Jonah to find out his faults and his flaws... However, again, how does then this relate to us? When Jesus tells his disciples, all authority on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. But what even do the disciples do? They don't go. They don't go into the nations. They're driven out when persecution arises. What do we do? Do we go? Are we afraid of what might happen to us? Our lips might not get torn from our bodies. But we're told that we're the light of the world. To proclaim the good news of Jesus. But do we? Again, we don't have the threat of our lips or limbs being torn off. Now, some countries might have the fear of punishment, but we don't. Granted, it's possible, or even shortly, for people to lose their jobs because of their beliefs. A recent case in Australia was in the headlines, not because this man said something about his beliefs, but he was connected to a church. And the the church had a sermon located in 2013, and this two-minute snippet of this sermon was brought up from the archives of the internet and surfaced. And because this man attended this church, he lost a prominent position at a football club. But how quick we are to be able to point the finger at Jonah and says, look at him run. But how quick we are already running with Jonah in the opposite direction. That we don't go forth and do what God has commanded us to do. But he had far more to lose. So then what is the reaction? After the prophet receives the message, what is the reaction? We see this in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now this is quite a different response from other prophets. Remember the story of Isaiah, when the Lord comes to Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
And Isaiah hears this voice telling him in chapter 6, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And the Lord said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and bind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Not only is he called to be able to go proclaim to the Israelites, and he says, here I am, send me his willingness, his eagerness to go. He's given a message of this, full, this dreary hope, it seems like. Go and preach, but you won't be hurt. Go and show them, but they won't see, won't understand. And you see, Isaiah's heart to be able to go and preach, even though he won't be hurt, even though they won't be understood or perceived. But Jonah doesn't even raise his hand. He tries to slip out the back door. Interestingly, we don't get any response from Jonah. We get who he is, what God told him to do, and then his actions. God said, arose, arise, and Jonah arose. But then he went in the other direction. Actually, the Hebrew makes it very quick, even you can see it in the the English In this short verse, we have all these things that he did. Jonah rose, he went down, he found, he paid, he went down to get away. Jonah sent to Nineveh, about 500 miles northeast of where he would be. And Jonah runs in the exact opposite direction, southwest to travel to Tarshish. Although we don't know exactly the exact location of this. Most people think it is um, a place in Spain, but Tarshish would be a common phrase which they would use for a foundry, a melting of metal. So this place could have been anywhere. But most people agree it's probably around Spain, which is about 2,000 miles away. He sent 500 miles and he turns the opposite direction to go 2,000 miles the other way. But the interesting part of all this is not the distance, not his actions, But the reason why he travels, we're told several times that he went the other way to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now this could mean he's trying to hide, but I actually think that Jonah actually understands God correctly as he has revealed himself in the Bible. The issue with Jonah is not that he falsely perceives God. He understands God and who he is. He does not like God. And who he is. The issue is with Jonah, not with Jonah's understanding of the Lord. He knows who God is. He knows that he cannot see God, but he always sees us. That he's omnipresent. He even says later that he's the God who made the heavens and the sea, the the seas and the dry land. And yet, how is he fleeing on the sea? But we see this as a common reaction to sin. What happened in the Garden of Eden when the Lord heard the sound? They heard the sound of the Lord coming and walking in the garden in verse 8. And the man and his women hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. I think it means, speaks more of running to try and flee from him, to hide from their sin, away from his temple, the promised land. 
One commentator says he is fleeing his responsibilities as the messenger of the heavenly king. He no longer wants to be the Lord's prophet. But he seeks to be able to run away from God as Cain does in chapter 4. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Again, it's not that Jonah misunderstands who God is. But this is the exact reason why he runs away, as we'll see in chapter 4. But also we need to see that it's not merely just that he runs away in a horizontal way. The author also shows that he runs away downwards. It's not just horizontal, it's a vertical descent. We see this in verse 3 again, that Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish from the present Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But later in verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship. And then later in the belly of the fish, he would go even deeper in the depths of the sea. When Isaiah was confronted with God's holiness, he, he has his lips cleaned. When Jonah is confronted with God's graciousness, he runs the other way. Again, we should not seek to point holes and prod holes in Jonah's actions. Sadly, I think many of us can avoid God. We seek to hide, not by running from him, per se, but we hide from his word. We hide from his people. One of the most common things that I notice who people who start to, to question and move away from the church is they stop going to church, being around God's people. They seek that they might be able to run from God. And the way they do that is by not being around his word and his people. But we do this, we run from his commandments, we ignore his word, we make excuses, we think we can run and, from him and his promises However, Jonah cannot escape God's omnipresent hand. He cannot escape his own guilt. But one last thing before we finish. We need to note that the grace that Jonah is running from is the grace that Jonah himself needs. The book of Jonah is interesting if you think about what would have happened if Jonah had his way. God could have raised up another, another prophet. Could have sent someone else. I mean, Isaiah, he's quite willing to go. Is there another that would have been willing to go? But the grace that Jonah is running from is the grace that Jonah needs. God use Jonah. God is the one who intervenes in Jonah's life, making it very uncomfortable. That God calls him to be a prophet, to, to go into this wicked nation, to be able to preach the good news of repentance. He gives the, that message. He helps his prophet. That God cares for the people of Nineveh. 
But also God cares for Jonah enough to be able to send him. And how this should be a comforting thought for us. Although I never encourage any of us to run to Tarshish, we don't know where it is, but whatever that might be, that God still calls us, that God still pursues us, that although Jonah might not like the way God is, it is the way God is, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he will not always chide and hide his guilt forever. But God still uses us to be able to go forth in all of our faults and all of our flaws. God still calls us to go forth and proclaim his gospel to those outside of his church. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we like Jonah, often make up excuses, seek to run the other way. Lord, we might even understand you and, your th- and who you are exactly, but we don't quite comprehend it in our minds. Lord, we pray that we would have a heart to be able to be the one who is sent and who goes willingly. Lord, but if we run, Lord, let us seek your grace as your grace pursues us that we find that we need the grace in which we're running from. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.